I particularly appreciate that song about our King, the God of grace. This morning, I would like to acknowledge all of you who has started a Bible reading plan this month, including those who are joining Pastor Nathan in the Reading the Bible in 90 Days reading plan. Somewhat surprisingly for me, this only requires reading the Bible for one hour per day, or for the Zondervan NIV, reading 12 pages per day to read through the whole Bible in 90 days. If you have not already started this yet, but want to join Pastor Nathan and follow along with the video summary blog that he posts to the church's YouTube channel, please email Pastor Nathan at nsteerman at nnec.org. And he will include you in the emails and direct you to the reading plan. Others of you may, like me, already be involved with a, in a Bible reading plan that you started sometime last year, which you have not yet finished. Or you may want to start a different reading plan this year. It is never too late. I started my current reading plan last spring. It's always good to start reading the Bible, and there are many different ways to read it. My wife once read the chronological Bible that organized the reading in the order in which they occurred. This plan had the events and writings always in the right order, which is helpful for some people. My reading plan is a self-directed reading plan that loosely follows an annual reading plan, even though it may take me just nine or ten months to complete it. I read about three chapters per day, but may read as many as ten chapters if they're short, such as in the Psalms, or as few as one chapter per day, think Psalm 119. I read, in two, I read in two separate Bibles each week, the U version on my cell phone, usually before getting out of bed in the morning. And on Sabbath, I study background material and various passages from my week's reading in the Andrews Study Bible, which is also the New King James. Sometimes I get lost for an hour at a time with a concordance or lexicon, a volume of the Conflict of Ages, or one of my other study books, such as Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes by Leonard Bailey, when I am reading in the Gospels. This morning, I would like to share something with you that is from my Bible reading earlier this week. I was reading Matthew, having just finished Malachi in the Old Testament last Sabbath morning. On Monday morning, I got to the end of a chapter and scrolled on to the next chapter. And then it hit me. What did that verse just say? I backed up to the prior chapter, scrolling down to look for what had just hit me. It's never quite as easy to find a verse once I turn the page, so to speak. And yet there it was. And my very next thought was, Whatever 
does that verse mean? I read it again. My next thought was, that would be a really good verse to use for a devotional for the elders meeting sometime. When I got out of bed a short time later, I wrote myself a note and put it on my computer desk to get around to when I had time. That time came Tuesday evening when I had finished the backed up financial work in the office and I rewarded myself by sitting down to start a devotional based on that scripture passage. The ideas kept coming. It grew beyond one page. It filled a second page. It spilled well down on a third page. It was quite simply too long. I saved it and went to bed. On Wednesday afternoon, I went into my office to try and shorten it after finding that it would take more than the three to five minutes time period elders' devotionals are supposed to be. It was undeniably at least seven minutes long. I edited it some more. It was now 52 words longer. I was already leaving things out that I'd hoped to include, and most importantly, a very recent personal story that I felt illustrated this Bible passage. So what I'm going to ask you to do is please join me as I take you with me through a passage from my Monday morning Bible reading that grew from a Bible reading interest to a devotional and then into a message for this morning. It feels to me like sermon might be a bit pretentious here, as this is just what happened when I came across something in the Bible that I wanted to understand a bit better. So perhaps you mo won't mind looking over my shoulder as I walk through my reading, my marginal text references, and devotional thoughts on Matthew 4. My study Bible, as I mentioned, is the Andrews Study Bible, which is New King James. And hopefully if we all start together, we can end up together after a walk through Jesus and the prophets. So here we go. Matthew 4, 5 through 7. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you and... In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Did you catch that? You shall not tempt the Lord your God? What does that even mean? I have read right over that passage a lot of times and it never hit me like it did Monday morning. And where did all these verses that Satan and Jesus are reciting to each other come from to begin with? So perhaps we should back up and notice where they came from. Though, first, I will say that Jesus' rebuke to Satan must have been really packed with power 
because Satan dropped that temptation like he had just pulled one of my wife's baked potatoes straight out of an oven with a bare hand. How do humans and or devils tempt God? And what does it mean for us today? First, some context. Satan's scriptures come from Psalm 91. And which one of us, whether we are from the Jewish faith or the Christian faith, have not turned to Psalm 91 at some point in the nearly, nearly three years that we have been with COVID-19. It is a passage that resonates comfort and strength. It calms our anxieties, and it reminds us that God is still on the job. Let's look at Psalm 19 this morning, starting with verse 1. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him I will trust. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler you shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come nigh you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked, because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot because he has set his love upon me. Therefore, I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. I think I skipped a verse in there and I apologize. I lost my place when I was reading. A question. Did Satan quote this scripture passage accurately? Now just think about that for a bit. If Satan used scripture, would you expect him to use it correctly? The implications of that question is astonishing because as we just read, yes, he quoted this passage accurately. 
This, is, this shows that satanically controlled forces can do and will quote scripture and quote it accurately. Which raises another question. How will we know if the person quoting scripture is divinely motivated or motivated by a different spirit entirely? Can you think of a Bible passage where this question might be answered? Jesus had to decide, and fairly quickly. We'll talk about that in a few minutes, but think about it for a bit. In the meantime, let's look at Deuteronomy 6, 16, which is part of Moses' sermon on the plains of Moab, just before his death and the entrance of the Israelites into the West Bank of the promised land under God's and Joshua's leadership. Here is the immediate context of Deuteronomy 6, 16 to 19. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may be well with you, and that you may go in and possess the good land of which the Lord swore to your fathers, to cast out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has spoken. I'll point out that the marginal readings for tempt and tempted in this verse is test and tested. What did the Israelites do at Massa that they are now being told to not do again? Well, that event is described here in Exodus 17, 1 through 7. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim where there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water and the people complained against Moses and said, why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? And here, the marginal reading from Massa 
is testing and Meribah is contention. There is a second place during the Exodus that was called Meribah. And that occurs in Numbers 20, 2 through 13. And we are told that it was in Kadesh where Moses struck the rock instead of speaking to it after the water stopped when they were on the edge of the land of Canaan. God here in this passage equated their complaining and doubting God's leading because they did not see water immediately with questioning whether God was with them. They doubted God's presence. This was despite the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, the death of all the Egyptian soldiers while they walked through the water on dry land safely. Jesus quoted Moses' words to Satan when Satan said, if you are the son of God, Satan here was questioning Jesus' identity. Ellen White, in a devotional book, The Desire of Ages, on page 124, has a quote relating to this incident. Satan now supposes that he has met Jesus on his own ground. The wily foe himself presents words that proceeded from the mouth of God. He still appears as an angel of light, and he makes it evident that he is acquainted with the scriptures and understands the import of what is written. As Jesus before used the word of God to sustain his faith, the tempter now uses it to countenance his deception. He claims that he has been only testing the fidelity of Jesus, and he now commends his steadfastness. As the Savior has manifested trust in God, Satan urges him to give still another evidence of his faith. But again, the temptation is prefaced with the insinuation of distrust. If Thou be the Son of God. Christ was tempted to answer the if, but he refrained from the slightest acceptance of the doubt. He would not imperil his life in order to give evidence to Satan. Satan tried to tempt Jesus to doubt that he was the Son of God. Ellen White continues, but while Satan can solicit, he cannot compel sin. Unless Christ should consent to temptation, he could not be overcome. We test or tempt God when we question God's presence in our lives. When we question if he can intervene in our lives today when we think we are simply left to endure natural consequences, when we doubt God's ability to provide exactly what we need when we need it, whether in small or large ways. In his parables, Jesus mentioned items as small as a coin or as large as a grown child. 
Yes, natural consequences will happen with all of us at various times. God is not limited, however, today any more than he was when power emanating from the hem of Jesus' garment healed a woman with uterine bleeding, after which Jesus raised a daughter who had just died from illness. He does not always save us physically any more than he saved John the Baptist, Peter, Paul, James, or multitudes of others in their times and after them. Yet we can trust him in everything, large and small. And that may be as hard for us to learn as it was for Israel in the days of Moses, the days of Joshua, David, Hezekiah, Josiah, Zedekiah, Zerubbabel, to name just a few in the Old Testament. But back to the question we talked about a few minutes ago. Did Satan quote this scripture passage accurately? What Bible passage did you think of when thinking about how do we tell whether someone quoting scripture is divinely inspired? There are likely more than one, surely, but the one that occurred to me is found in Matthew 7, 15 to 20. Here we have this passage. Beware of false prophets, Jesus said, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Notice that Jesus repeated that last line at the beginning, up near the beginning, and at the end to provide emphasis to it. This is an important point that he was making. What were the apparent fruits of the angel of light who took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and suggested that he throw himself down to test God's care and protection for him? Those fruits included doubting his own identity as the incarnate son of God, doubting God's current presence and protection, even though it appeared to outward appearances, that he had been abandoned by God. Are these the fruits of the Spirit of God? I would say a resounding no. What are the fruits of the Spirit? Let's look at this in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So these are the fruits of God's Spirit for which we can look. Faith is listed there along with all those other wonderful, godlike character traits. Which brings us to another question. In what way or ways can or do we tempt God today? And here, I will tell a short, sad story of my own failures very recently for which I've had to repent and confess to God and apologize to Pastor Nathan. This is not something I take any pleasure or satisfaction in except that God led me back to repentance. In fact, it's with some embarrassment and shame that I tell this. But it is perhaps a cautionary tale. It took place on the evening of December 24, the Friday night before Christmas Day, 2021. I was the only one scheduled for staffing the audiovisual department the following day. And I had repeatedly warned the pastoral staff and elders at elders meeting that the service would need to be very simple. However, the order of service that I received that Friday night was anything but simple for AV. In fact, it has a set of complex AV demands. All of you who were either present in person or watched the live stream or YouTube file later saw what a wonderful service it was with music and readings. Yet at that moment that I saw that, I totally forgot to have faith in God's leading in this, even though I pray every day for God's spirit to bless and lead both Pastor Nathan and myself. I unfortunately sent a series of text messages to him pointing out the complexity and yielding to my outrage and anger, as I now had no time to, to prepare the soundboard for this service and there were no rehearsals scheduled, as there simply was no time, given the lateness of the hour. You should know that I have difficulty mixing groups on the fly when I have had no time to prepare and do sound checks and balance the voices due to significant hearing loss in one ear, which makes it difficult for me to localize sound and determine what needs to be adjusted. Thankfully, Pastor Nathan, seeing the text, called me. He had simply not known that this was complicated for us. He truly thought it was a simple program. He calmed my spirits. And while I was talking with him, I calmed down enough and messaged my friend Eric Pierce, who said he was available to do sound, which would let me focus on live streaming and running the projection slides. Pastor Nathan, Nathan offered to come in and help 
And early the next morning, the three of us all showed up at the church to plan for the day as best we could. Another close friend, Brian Budd, showed up and offered to do projection. A bit later, yet another friend, Rob Sousa, came up to AV to take care of the lighting issues for the two services. Now there were four AV staff members in the balcony, more than we had had for most Sabbaths in the prior six months. It suddenly burst upon my mind and became clear to me that if I had simply had faith in God, he had already created a solution to the problem I had allowed to look so big that to me it totally eclipsed my faith. I had made the same mistake Moses had made at the second Meribah in Kadesh at the border of Canaan when the water had stopped, Numbers 20, 1 through 13. My lack of faith had crossed the line into sin for which I, like Moses, needed to repent and confess. I was faced with a similar but perhaps less severe instance in audiovisual just a couple of weeks later when I was again on for soundboard and was able to go in on a Thursday night for one and a quarter hours, do a preliminary setup on the soundboard that allowed me to make most of the needed adjustments within the um, Friday night and Sabbath morning rehearsals. I hope that on that note, I have learned to trust in God both in the large things and in the small things. May God help me and each one of you to walk in grace with God each day as we learn to trust God supremely no matter what the external circumstances appear to be. Our church value that we have been talking about today is God. We take time for prayer. We spend quality time in the Bible. Falling in love with God, we are awakened to his purpose in our lives. We seek to align our lives and actions with this purpose. And remember our mission. Love God with all our hearts. Love the people God has put around us just as much as we love ourselves. Thank you very much for being with us today. Let's bow our heads for a short prayer. Father, we pray that you will be with us, that your spirit will go with us, that you will help us as we read your word to understand and to develop a stronger faith as you give us continually more and more of your spirit to call us back to repentance and to teach us how to live for you and how to live for others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you were blessed by today's message. For more content or to connect with us, visit us online at brunswickadventist.church.com.